I spoke with someone before church last Sunday, someone who will remain nameless, of course, who also is not here today, who told me that they didn't like Jesus' parables. Now, why not, you may wonder? Well, because they said they'd prefer that Jesus just come right out with it. Lord, whatever lesson it is that you're trying to teach, just give it to me straight. Quit with the riddles and the stories and the examples and just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Now, deep down, before you judge that person too harshly, I think we can all relate to some degree. That's especially true with how challenging Jesus's last two parables have been. The one about the dishonest manager and the one about the rich man and Lazarus. So if you can sympathize with that nameless congregant, which I think we can, I've got good news for you. Before today's parable ever even begins, Luke tells us what Jesus calls us to do. Luke does the work for us. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's the point of this morning's parable. Jesus' disciples, both then and now, people like them and people like us, must pray and not lose heart. If you skip over verse 1 and bend over backwards trying to find some deeper, hidden meaning in this parable, you might be looking too close. But with all that said, it's worth noting that while Jesus gives us the what in verse 1, he doesn't give us the why. Why must we pray and not lose heart? Jesus gives us two reasons in the following verses. Christians pray without losing heart because we know who God is. And we pray without losing heart because we know Jesus is coming again. So open up to Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given us together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. I ask that you watch over this church. Help our words and our deeds, our thoughts and our feelings, our desires and priorities be honoring to you this morning. And not just this morning, but every day. Church is far more than just an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. I pray that the whole life of this church individually, collectively, as an institution, and just as a group of people. I pray that we would honor you in what we say and do. I pray for those in our church who are sick. We have a number of them. We also have a number of people traveling. I ask that you watch over those people who are recuperating at home, that you watch over for those people who are on the road. We ask that you would keep people safe and healthy wherever they might be. And again, help our worship be honoring to you today and beneficial for us. I pray that you would grow us in our love for you, our knowledge of you, and our desire to serve you and to worship you. We love you. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, our parable this morning ties back to much of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. In the second half of that chapter, Jesus tells his disciples that a time is coming when he will no longer be with them. But he also tells them that that time won't last forever. He will soon suffer and be rejected. We'll talk about that at Easter here in just a couple of weeks. After he's gone, many will claim that he's returned, but they'll be wrong. He'll rise from the dead, but then he'll go away again. Some people will simply go on with normal life in Jesus's absence after his resurrection, as though nothing important has happened. But then when Jesus returns, they'll be shocked. For those people, Jesus's second coming will be a day of judgment. Now, that all sounds a bit jarring, doesn't it? And as if the disciples aren't already shaken enough by these words, Jesus doesn't even give them a time frame for all of it. But he does tell them what they should do while they wait. That's what we read in verse one. Pray and do not lose heart. Pray and do not lose heart while you wait. But let's read our parable beginning in verse two. Jesus said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Points for self-awareness for the judge. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, as we've seen in several of our parables as of late, we've got two main characters to consider. First, there's the judge. Many Bibles label this the parable of the persistent widow while others call it the parable of the unjust judge. Now, which one is it? Well, it's worth asking, is this judge really unjust? That phrase, neither feared God nor respected man, may sound negative at first, but some people argue that his level of independence, his level of impartiality, would actually be a virtue in his position. He is beholden to no one, not even God. He's no people pleaser. He is an unbiased straight shooter. And that makes him perfectly suited for a gig like this. Now, that's a nice idea. If we're trying to make the judge sound not so bad. 
But the context of the parable and the rest of the Bible suggest otherwise. In the ancient world, neither fearing God nor respecting man was a sign of wickedness. In 2 Chronicles 19, Israelite king Jehoshaphat appoints judges, and God makes it clear that they must fear him to do their jobs well. It's a prerequisite for the position. In 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, the apostle writes that human authorities, like judges, for example, are appointed by God to punish evil and praise good. And that's something that this judge doesn't seem very eager to do. But most pointedly of all, look at Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 19. God tells Moses, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. It's undeniable that he is a bad judge. He's an unjust judge. But that brings us to our widow. This woman believes that she has been wronged. Though we don't learn how, and we don't learn why. And she wants justice to be done. Some suggest that she is seeking vengeance. But the judge won't do it. While not every widow in the Bible is some helpless damsel in distress, this one is likely quite vulnerable. The parable suggests that she has no family members, particularly male family members, to advocate for her. On top of that, she likely doesn't have much money. Because if she did, she could have bribed the judge to move things along, which was very common in the ancient world. In short, this widow needs justice. She has very little leverage. And the one man who should secure it for her, the judge, is uncaring, unconcerned, and unmoved. So what does the widow do? Well, in my opinion, this is the best part of one of my favorite parables. She pesters the judge. She does the same thing to the judge that my kids do to me when they want to play video games. They just annoy me. She does the same things that my dog does when she needs to go to the bathroom. She just annoys me. She comes to the judge over and over and over again. She comes to him with the same consistency that Purdue chokes in the tournament. And if you're annoyed by that illustration, just know that I'm trying to help you put yourself in the judge's shoes. He was annoyed too. The woman would not leave him alone. She floods his inbox. She blows up his phone. She bugs him incessantly. She clearly believes that she is in the right that her adversary is in the wrong. And she expects the judge to do his job. And who can blame her? By the way, here's a very fun fact about verse 5. 
The word translated beat me down. When the judge says, I don't want this woman to beat me down with her continual coming. That comes from the boxing ring. It's possible that the judge is literally fearing for his physical safety. He's scared that the widow is going to punch him in the face. The judge may not fear God or respect man, but he's wise in one way. You never mess with a Karen. I think that's in Proverbs, probably the message version. So the unjust judge eventually gives in to this woman. But it is worth noting that he doesn't do so out of some newfound fear of God or some newfound respect for man. He doesn't do it out of some deep conviction concerning justice. He doesn't do it out of some solemn sense of duty or responsibility to his profession. He does it out of selfish motives. He does it out of convenience. Or if he's scared the widow is going to give him a black eye, he does it out of self-preservation. More than anything, the judge just wants this woman off his back. So in the end, he gives her justice. Now, as we said earlier, Luke has already told us what this parable teaches disciples to do. We must pray and not lose heart. Like the widow seeking justice from the judge, Christians pray fervently, consistently, and even tenaciously. We do not give up, even when it seems like things are moving slow or not moving at all. So that's the what of this parable. But again, what is the why? Why do we pray and not lose heart? Is the lesson that we pray and not lose heart because if we just annoy God enough with our requests, then he will eventually give us what we want. Is the lesson that God sometimes forgets to do his job and just needs a little nudge to get the ball rolling. Is the lesson that we just have to pressure God a little bit. If we twist his arm and tighten the screws, we can manipulate him into doing something. Or do we pray and not lose heart for some other reason? Christians pray without losing heart because we know who God is. We know who God is. And you know who God isn't? You know who he's not like? The unjust judge. God is not unrighteous. He's perfectly good. God does not shoo his people away when we cry out to him in prayer. He welcomes us. God does not answer our prayer so that we will just leave him alone. He provides for us as our loving father. Think back a couple months ago to Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. That was the parable of the friend at midnight. If a groggy and perturbed neighbor will help out a friend in need, 
how much more so will God help his children? And if an unjust judge, a wicked man who neither fears God nor respects other people, will eventually give the widow what she needs, how much more so will God? We know that God is good. We know that God is kind. We know that God is just. And that's why we pray without losing heart. We know that God hears us. We know that God cares for us. And we know that in the end, he will give us what we need. So our prayers can be hopeful, confident, and consistent because we know who God is. And knowing who God is, unchangeably good, kind, and just, we can pray and not lose heart. That even includes when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want or when we want. After all, if our faith and our prayers are grounded in God's character, we can trust that even when it seems like he doesn't hear us, Even when it seems like he is moving too slowly, he has good reason for it. One of the Protestant reformers once wrote, If God does not immediately set us free from our affliction, we should not therefore leave off from praying. He will without a doubt hear the prayers of his children and will answer when the time is right. And a delay may result in a greater and holier good. We pray without losing heart because we know who God is. But then Jesus gives us a second reason why we pray without losing heart. And that's because we know he is coming again. We mentioned Jesus' words about his second coming back in chapter 17. And here he brings it up again in verse 8. That's the part where he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If we hope to endure in our faith to the end, either when we die or Christ returns, prayer is absolutely essential for us. In verse 1, where Luke says Jesus was teaching his disciples that they ought not pray and lose heart, or that they ought to pray and not lose heart, that word ought can also be translated need. Jesus' disciples need to pray and not lose heart. A life of following Jesus without prayer is about as possible as swimming across the Atlantic Ocean. It can't be done. Prayer is not optional for Jesus' disciples. It is necessary. If we are to have any hope of enduring to the end, we must pray and not lose heart by the power of the Spirit whom God has given us. And because we know that Jesus is coming again, because we know how the story ends, We can keep praying. The parable ended with the widow getting justice. 
The judge finally did what he was supposed to do, and she was vindicated. And similarly, the Bible ends with God doing what is right. He cast down Satan once and for all. He renews the fallen world corrupted by sin. And he raises his saints to live in his presence. So even if it seems like God is taking a long time to us, after all, our idea of speedily can be very different from God's. And even if it feels like there are a few too many bumps in the road along the way, God's people know that we will be vindicated in the end. We will be delivered in the end. So we press on until we see our Lord. Now, if I may be so bold, I might argue that prayer is the single Christian practice that best expresses faith. And here's what I mean by that. You can be a dedicated and even gifted student of the Bible and lack faith. You can be highly involved with your church purely out of a sense of family or social obligation. You can be an excellent example of honesty, generosity, courage, or humility. All wonderful virtues. And not believe. But few things display a stronger personal relationship with God. A deeper sense of humble dependence upon God. Than the practice of prayer. So if your prayer life is healthy and growing. Great. Do not lose heart. And if your prayer life is on life support. Or if it's non-existent. Which trust me I've been there before. Talk to a fellow believer who can encourage you. Because you need the gift. The privilege. The joy. Of prayer. You know, the Christian life isn't always a cakewalk. Hard seasons come, difficult decisions arise, plans fall apart, relationships crumble, justice is thwarted, bodies fail, resources dry up. At times, it seems like our primary adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are winning. So it's no wonder that our faith can waver. We can lose heart. Prayer can feel like a lost cause. But we must remember who God is. We must remember that Christ is coming again. We always have reason for hope. We always have reason to pray. And when we do find ourselves losing heart, which will inevitably happen at some point in our lives, there's help for us then, too. In Romans 8, 26, the Apostle Paul writes that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how or what to pray. A few verses later, we learn that the Son intercedes for us as well. And of course, don't forget that when you don't know how or what to pray, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who pray for you. That's part of the purpose of the church. 
Even in the deepest and darkest moments of our lives, we have reason for hope in Christ. We have reason for joy in Christ. We have reason to pray. Just ask Christ. In just a couple weeks, we'll be talking about the crucifixion. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he famously cried out, quoting Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those verses continue. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And those verses very much sound like the prayer of someone who is losing heart, don't they? But then look at verse 3. The psalmist says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. And then look at verses 27 and 28. The psalmist says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22 begins as the prayer of someone who is suffering. The prayer of someone who sounds like they're losing heart. But the psalm ends with reaffirmations of who God is. It ends with confidence and hope and joy in God. May the same be true of our prayers. So again, what does this parable tell us to do? Luke does the work for us. We don't have to look very close. He lets the cat out of the bag in verse 1 that we must pray without losing heart. But why do we do it? For that, we do have to look a little bit closer. And when we do, we learn that we pray because we know who God is. And we pray because we know Jesus is coming again. God's identity and character and our Lord's life, death, resurrection and promised return. Those things remain true regardless of our circumstances. As a result, we always have hope in the midst of them. They're like an anchor in the storm. So like that persistent widow, may we keep crying out to God. Over and over and over again. Knowing that if an unjust judge eventually met the needs of his pesky and vulnerable constituent, how much more so will God meet the needs of his forgiven and adopted children in Christ? So pray and do not lose heart. Let's pray together right now. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you that no matter when we pray, no matter where we pray, 
no matter what our circumstances may be, no matter what's happening around us, no matter how we're feeling, you are always the same God. Every single time we seek you out in prayer, you are who you are. You are good, you are kind, you are just, you do not change. And that is reassuring in the midst of a world that changes by the day. So Lord, help us pray to you and not lose heart, knowing that your identity and your character remain the same. And Lord, help us pray and not lose heart, knowing that one day you will come again, that we will stand before you, that you will come in power and glory. And that in the end, your people are vindicated and delivered. And so even when it seems like it's a long way off, even when it seems like the world is irredeemable, help us remember that you are coming, that it won't be this way forever. Lord, give us hope and give us confidence in that. Help us be ready for when you come. I pray that you would find us faithful when you return. And Lord, I pray that you would give us endurance. As we've said, it's hard living as a follower of Christ. There are many people in this world who have it much harder than we do, but we suffer too. It's hard to endure. It's hard to keep the faith. It's hard to keep hope in the midst of a dark and fallen world that is far from you. But I pray that you would give us endurance. Give us persistence. Help us keep coming back to you over and over and over again in prayer, knowing who you are and knowing that Christ will return. Help us suffer well. But Lord, help us realize that we cannot suffer well, suffer faithfully, if we're not coming to you in prayer. Remind us of our dependence upon you day in and day out. And help us express it through prayer. Thank you that we have reason to not lose heart. In a world where so many people are losing heart and do lose heart. Help us press on in the faith. And I pray that you would enable us to do that through this gift of prayer that you've given us, that you've called us to. We love you. We thank you for your son, your spirit, your word, your church. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.